Hello, this is Haley Nauman, and you're listening to the Maybe Baby Podcast. Today, I'm going to be talking about my 24th newsletter. It's called The Emily Ratajkowski Effect. Um, it's probably my most controversial newsletter so far, and it actually got kind of the, the more eyes on it than any other one I've published so far, probably because it's um, a response to an essay that went viral last week that is a little bit um, maybe like unpopular compared to the broader response on Twitter. So I'm really glad that um, people engage. So I just wanted to say thank you. Um, I will do a reading of the newsletter, but I'm going to save it for the end again because it's kind of a long one. And I'm going to assume that most people listening to this have already read it. But I'm really excited to be bringing on a guest this week. Her name is Mallory Rice. Um, she was my editor at Man Repeller when I was there for maybe the last year. Um, we're also just good friends now. And she is a brilliant editor. I actually asked her to edit this piece before I published it on Sunday. And she had some great thoughts. Um, we had texted also about the article. I just like asked her if she read it because I was curious to hear her thoughts because I'm always interested in how she receives these kinds of things because she's been working in media for years, much longer than me, and um, just always has kind of like an interesting perspective that I feel is not like always necessarily influenced by like the popular response. So I was really excited to talk to her about this um, as kind of a follow-up and just sort of talk about our original reactions to Emily Ratajkowski's uh, viral essay in the cut, and then kind of what drove me to write about it, and then also talk through some of the reactions, including some of the criticisms. So without further ado, let's get right into it. Hi, Mallory. Hi. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm good. Um, I'm eating my peanut butter sandwich that I didn't eat yesterday when I was fly fishing. Wait, peanut butter only? Yeah, we don't have any jelly right now. <laughs> Wait, can I please just tell you that I had a peanut butter only sandwich today because I didn't have any jelly? <laughs> I literally had the exact same thing for lunch. That's the saddest lunch. It's not very good. Yeah. <laughs> it's so sad. Um, okay, so let's get right into it. Tell me what you thought of the Emrata essay when you read it. Well, I think, um, you know, it was one of those days when it came out. It was a day where I was too busy to read the piece but not so busy that I didn't read a bunch of things of people reacting to the piece. <laughs> yeah, classic. So I knew that it was something that I wanted to read. Um, but then I got a text from you and you asked me what I thought about it. And so then I thought, okay, I'm going to read it so I can like form an opinion and like talk to Haley about it. Yeah. I, yeah. So that night I read it. Um, and I told you like, I had this weird reaction to it initially because I know somebody who's a model who's had dealings with that photographer. Jonathan Leader. Yeah. So I realized that as I was reading it, I thought the name sounded familiar. He also used to shoot for Nylon where I used to work, although I've never met him. Um, oh, wow. And yeah. So I was like, okay, this is like a person who's like been around. Um, so first I had my own kind of personal reaction to being like, oh, this is that guy. Um, and feeling weird about that. But um, I also... I thought, like, I I like her style of writing. Like, she writes in, like, clear, simple sentences. And, like, it's very straightforward and clean. Um, and I I initially, like, just right off the bat, just appreciated that about it. Um, mm -hmm. In terms of what she was saying, I think there's, like, the first, just the visceral, the visceral, visceral reaction that you have to her experience, right? Which is, like, this is not good. This is like not a workable situation right. for her or for women. And it makes me really sad. Um, mm -hmm. And then I think looking at it again, I started thinking some of the framing felt overly curated for the audience. Like it felt like it was anticipating what criticisms may be um, and trying to accommodate them. And I think there were just certain things that she was taking for granted about her own decision making that I don't take for granted, I guess. 
Like what? Like the idea that you sh- that like your best option is to work within uh, a completely broken system. Right. Yeah, which kind of speaks to her broader political framework, I think. I I, I think I, I actually reread the essay this morning mm-hmm. and it's it's interesting because I had read it I read it like kind of at the very beginning of this whole process and then I spent like days critiquing it. So I kind of I had gotten far away from like the actual prose of the piece. And so mm-hmm. in kind of rereading it, I was reminded of like like what a good storyteller she is and like how sad the dynamic she was explaining was and and recognizable Mm -hmm. um there were some like writing style things that I kind of found a little heavy-handed like the kind of the use of detail that I felt was sometimes it seemed like something she like learned in a writing class Mm -hmm. but (laughs) which that's just me and everyone's like on their on their journey Mm -hmm. um myself included but I still thought it was really effective. And mm-hmm. I do I've, I do feel for, I think that, um, I obviously really feel for her and I think it sounds really scary. Um, what I was responding to more so than the essay itself was the reaction to the essay. Mm-hmm. Um, and which, and kind of the reaction to Emily Ratajkowski in general, which is of course that she's like, um, kind of a feminist icon or that she has like really interesting ideas about how to like empower women or herself at least Mm -hmm. and um it was hard for me to like separate the essay from like her like implied solution throughout her whole career Mm -hmm. so for Mm -hmm. me I think I I think like maybe one flaw in my response was like assuming that this essay was more than just a personal essay and like I sort of applied a political lean to it that I have seen in like every other interview she's given Mm -hmm. so it was hard for me to take it out of context so I think Mm -hmm. like that is one thing I've been thinking about in one critique that people offered which was like well what's the point of a personal essay which I thought was kind of like an interesting question to consider but but before actually we get into the response Mm -hmm. maybe you can talk about like um so I don't know if people will have definitely read the piece if before they listen to this podcast. I think they probably will. But just to quickly sum up what I wrote, mm-hmm. um, I basically wanted to talk about um, the response to the piece, which was like this idea that it was really like politically powerful and politically expedient and how I felt that like in what ways I felt that it fell short of that. So, namely, like um, basically she's a really outspoken proponent of choice feminism, which is this idea that any woman who makes a choice for herself and is empowered by that choice is making a feminist choice. And anyone who critiques that choice is not a feminist or is Mm anti-feminist. This is sort of like the undergirding of her whole like career, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or if if not anti-feminist, at the very least, not fun. Yeah, or like, yeah, like an internet scold, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought it was, you know, it's it's interesting because I saw this essay as like almost an opportunity for her to critique choice feminism. Like, I was looking at an old, an old quote of hers in Women's Wear Daily where she says, quote, my response to people saying I post over-sexualized images is that it's my choice and that there's an ownership and an empowerment through them. And I felt that with this essay, she was almost saying, actually, there's not. Look at how mm-hmm. I don't have ownership mm-hmm. and I don't have power. And it was it could have been like an interesting opportunity for her to sort of examine her, the viewpoint she's been pushing to young women mm-hmm. for, mm-hmm. you know, seven years or however long she's been in the public eye. Yeah. And instead, she just sort of doubled down. And it just, I think that like that sort of duplicitousness felt... Like, like it rang an alarm bell for me. Yeah. I think that, like, a more interesting or what would feel to me like a more honest stance would be to say that felt like the best option to me at the time and then try to share why, which I think people would understand, and then say... Yes. And here's how it didn't really go the distance for me, um, which is what we learn, you know? Like, that's essentially what you learn by the end of the piece that it only went so far 100 percent. yeah there's this sort of um 
she's almost like walking up to the line of talking about like the actual cause without actually doing it. I wish it examined not just like the blowback from having a shitty guy kind of exploit her, but like why that like happened in the first place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like her whole brand amounts to like a justification for how this system can be empowering. And it just feels like it doesn't scale. Yes. And I think I would say that I think we all know why things were the way they were at this point. Like mm-hmm. at that time when you were a model, like there, you know, when she was a model and she was just getting started, it was still a time where you were, you mainly were just working with male photographers because that's all who was like getting hired and represented, etc. Um, so, you know, now if somebody was getting into modeling, you may have more of an option to like work with a different spectrum of people, which is great. And like, that should keep like growing. Um, but I think like, not that I think like it also, it does, it does come down to what, what was her intention in writing the essay. Um, but I think that she, has to compromise so much like at the end like she's really not she's not regaining that much power admittedly I would say right like I think and you know you mentioned this in your piece too but the way that she refers to herself in the third person makes me feel like she's like resigned to the fact that she has to separate herself from herself (laughs) that like we all know you know in order to like yeah to like sustain this kind of like public life that she's having. Um, But I think that what I'd be interested to know is how she thinks she could get more power. And, And the other thing too, is like, it's not like I don't think she's a radical thinker. I mean, you know, like her being like an outspoken Bernie supporter makes me think that she could go further or would be willing to. Um, Mm -hmm. So, so I think, I don't know, like, like the resigned ending of the piece makes me want more. Yeah, totally. And I think, I think like some people kind of took issue with my piece in that thinking I ignored what they saw as the purpose, which was just simply to tell a story about power dynamics. Mm -hmm. And if you do think about like the broader Me Too movement, I definitely agree that simply like telling the stories does have power, but I do think it needs to be part of a broader effort. So I think if we if we think of like what is the point of exposing corruption basically or mm-hmm. like exploitation, it's part of like a broader effort. I think it's it's not just about especially when it comes to assault, it's not just about storytelling. I think that's probably why, as I was reading, I jumped to thinking about purpose and, like, what mm-hmm. is the broader purpose of a piece like this? And mm-hmm. so I think it, it does make sense to, like, think about Emily's politics. Mm-hmm. I, I went to her Instagram kind of curious to see if maybe she was having a little bit of a change in her perspective. Um and it was just, like, really let down by her Instagram. <laughs> mm-hmm. Let down by Instagram? <laughs> when has that ever happened to anyone? That's actually a fair critique in that, like, I don't really think everyone's stated beliefs are necessarily represented on their Instagram. <clears throat> but for someone like Emily, I think she's made... I think she is going to run into, eventually, the same issue that, like, Taylor Swift ran into, <clears throat> which was... This idea that Taylor Swift was sort of making feminism part of her marketing. Mm-hmm. And yes, and I don't, I don't think it's cynical for you to have said that about her writing that piece, that it's like a branding exercise. Um, because of course it is. Like, she's not a writer. She's a model. Like, it's, there's a reason why she's putting it out there. Like, that has to do with how she wants to be perceived. You know, like, mm-hmm. I, I think that's, like, straightforward. Yeah, and I also think, I mean, even in the piece, she talks about being 20 and wanting the photographer to see her as pretty and smart and cultured. And I think that she still has that desire. Like, I do think that a lot of her branding, while while it's also been, like, concerned, maybe 
authentically with like female liberation I also think a lot of it has been about like proving something about like mm-hmm. what she can offer mm-hmm. I think that she has she really does want to be seen as smart probably because a lot of people have assumed that she's not Mm-hmm. And I totally understand that, but I do think I sometimes feel a kind of agenda when she like goes po- political. I actually, well, I thought, because um, she mentions more than once in the piece, right, that she wants to be seen as being smart. Mm-hmm. Um, and she is smart. Like that much is clear. Like she's yeah. smart in other related things. Like she's very savvy as well, clearly. Um, yeah. and that, that's like another reason why I'm like, oh, go a little further. Like, like you wrote this piece that like, as you said, got like golf claps from like, you know, everybody on Twitter, but she like, I mean, I'm glad that like you engaged with it in a different way. And that to me makes it more interesting of a piece. Um, but I think that like, she could have gone even further. Like, I think she's capable of it. Um, which is like, I guess kind of what I was saying before, but yeah, I mean, I think that and maybe this is like a cynical response, but I feel like she puts some of her her brand at risk if she takes it further. I think like if she were to implicate choice feminism, for instance, or like or or imply that, um, you know, her profiting off of it is just sort of as a means of survival and like no it's not necessarily radical but like sometimes everybody's just got to get through that would Mm -hmm. obviously take something away from her brand which is that she wants to be seen as progressive in everything she does right yeah so so if she identified those things then she would have to change yeah or she would have to embrace that she's like more complicated and that like sometimes she doesn't live by these values but that's a reality of the system, you know, or like something that's just a little more complicated. And I think mm-hmm. that like, obviously that's not easy mm-hmm. territory to tread. And I think that like a lot of people are grappling with it mm-hmm. as we realize, like, and I, I talked about this in the piece that like a lot of things that we want for ourselves and our desires are shaped by forces that we don't want to comply with. And that's obviously like, it's a lot of, it mm-hmm. causes a lot of dissonance and it it's, I do think it's a very human reaction to be like, to try to justify everything you do as being like inevitable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I also wonder, I know you mentioned this in your piece, but, um, you know, she brings up how much money she doesn't have like mm-hmm. a couple times mm-hmm. too. Right. Um, and I think, I think there's like some implication there that like she can't afford to change um, that I don't know. I don't know if that is legit. Yeah, there's she tries to class herself in a way that feels a little dishonest. I mean, even in her. Mm-hmm. I can't remember. I was re- I've read a bunch of pieces by her and interviews with her. Um, just trying to, like, make sure I had a full picture of what she was offering. Um, but she kind of talks about how her parents were sort of middle class. She, like, employs a lot of these little details I think to position herself in a certain Mm -hmm. way and I understand it like people are resentful of the rich and I think she's really aware of that and I don't Mm -hmm. think that she wants to be seen Mm -hmm. as super wealthy or like able to basically buy her way out of some of these problems that most people can't like I think it's just like it it, again Mm -hmm. like I feel like she sort of omits details that would ask more of her and Mm-hmm. it's her story to tell absolutely and I think like I do not think that she was making any of it up or telling it to get attention necessarily I think that like she thinks that this is a you know a story that's happening to a lot of people and wanted to share it and expose something but I just think or its broader purpose if it had one was a little bit in conflict with just like the way she lives her life and like the way she insists that how she lives is is like progressive Mm-hmm. One thing that you had mentioned to me when we had first started texting about it was that you felt that almost some of the golf claps were a little patronizing. Yeah. Can you explain what you meant by that? Um, or we don't have to get into that if you don't want to. No, no, I, I, I'm happy to. Um, I think that, you know, as someone who hasn't used Twitter since April and just looks <laughs> Good at for it, you. Um, yeah, although, yeah, I mean, maybe I'll tweet tomorrow, who knows, but, um, 
But I think that, you know, it feels like using Twitter, I'm sure to pretty much everyone feels like a minefield. So like, if you see an easy thing to engage with or praise, if you're someone who feels a need to like tweet multiple times a day or whatever, um, this article would have been like, an easy thing for your own branding exercise to be like, look at me, a smart person saying that this piece by a person who you may have thought was not smart is good. Like that's like a very, that's an easy tweet for the day, I mm-hmm. think. Um, so it could be that people were at, like were actually surprised by how good it was, or they thought that it would look good for them to like give it credit. Um, either way, I kind of felt like it seemed, yeah, like it seemed like something that like most people wouldn't argue with and would just be like happy about. I don't know. Yeah. So. Yeah, I know what you mean. I feel like there was definitely an edge of like not necessarily like fully engaging with the piece, um, the way that, and you know, maybe people don't want to critique essays about assault I actually completely understand that and respect anyone's choice to be like you know what this is like this was probably a hard story to tell like I think her calling somebody out is like enough and I I actually did Mm -hmm, get mm -hmm. some responses like that and I totally respect them but another person Mm -hmm. put it in my comments which I thought was really nice um somebody had had said something like that like they had said you know I think that a woman should be able to like tell her story and talk about her experience and or something like that. And um, mm-hmm. somebody said that they think that actually like subjecting her work to analysis and critiquing it as like kind of a cultural text is actually kind of it's a generous like show of respect for like Emily's position as like mm-hmm. as a dare I say like thought leader almost for like a very for at least like one Mm -hmm. particular type of very influential person yeah yeah and I think that like I mean obviously that that comment like serves my purposes but I did I did think Mm -hmm. that there is something to say for giving her the time of day giving her ideas the time of day and I actually don't Mm -hmm. I did not expect my piece to blow up on Twitter the way it did Um, and I kind of woke up feeling a little like overexposed and nervous because I just hadn't really considered a much that broad of an audience. I was like thinking about my subscribers. Mm -hmm. Um, and I had this thought of like, what if she reads it? (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, I don't know if she name searches on Twitter, but it definitely would have been (laughs) kind of there if she does. And then I felt kind mm-hmm. of bad, <laughs> but it made me realize mm-hmm. that like, I actually don't think she should feel bad if she reads it. I think that like, just as like, I don't feel bad if people are critiquing my approach. And I think that like, one of the, the things that inspired me to write this in the first place is that critiquing each other is like a really important part of progress. And like, yeah, yeah, I, I like, I, I would, I want to say a couple yeah. of things. So I think, um, you know, the idea that like you can't engage with someone's story at all, if it like includes like assault, I think is like not a sustainable idea. Um, yeah. I think like it all comes down to like the way in which you engage with it. And I think, yes, I thought, I think that you engage with it in a thoughtful way that even if Emrata read it herself, she may not agree with your perception of the piece but I, I would hope that like she would find it interesting and like maybe there would be some things that would be things that she'd want to think about in the future. Um, but but yeah, I, I also wanted to ask you, did it feel like very meta when there were like a bunch of blue check marks praising your piece? <laughs> were you like, oh, God, <laughs> like like Haley, should I write a piece about your piece now? <laughs> Honestly, please, let's just like keep this train going as long as possible. Yeah. Um, it did, although I mean, I feel like it was – you know, I I did think that I was excited because it was kind of like leftist th- thinkers and like cultural critics that I respect who I felt I was excited that they found my ideas salient. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're you're absolutely right. Like <laughs> it, it might have I guess in my view, it was like different blue checks. So like I was more excited about who yeah. it was. But yeah, that's a- yeah, because because you knew you trusted that they would say if they didn't like it. 
Right. Like, I guess I felt like it was, like, spicier people. You know, it always feels yeah. good to, like, earn or to, to get, like, approval from people that you respect. But I'm sure that Emily felt that way and when she, her piece went out and, like, that's great. <laughs> yeah, which is, yeah, and also, like, not to say that anyone, like, no one who praised her piece has any credibility. Like, of course I'm not saying that. No, and I actually, um, one thing I really yeah. liked about the reception of my piece is that a lot of people said that they really liked Emily's essay and they liked mine Mm -hmm. and I really I think Mm -hmm. I get really excited by that kind of commentary because it makes me feel like people are like able to hold two ideas in their head at once and and like Mm -hmm. I actually tweeted about this this morning but a few years ago I read this book Sharp by Michelle Dean Mm -hmm. did you ever read that I haven't read it but I'm familiar with Michelle Dean's writing and really think she's great yeah, it was. It's funny because Avi got it for me for like my birthday or something, and I remember thinking it was kind of like a random gift, like just because I'd never even heard of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but I ended up loving it. It's basically like this huge book that um, explores like prominent women thinkers of the twentieth century, um, writers actually, and mm-hmm. t- and like mostly like New York media, kind of these big personalities that we've all like heard name checked mm-hmm. a lot. Cool. Um. Yeah, and it's it's she kind of one thing that really stuck out to me about the book is the idea that a lot of these writers were critiquing each other mm-hmm. publicly, mm-hmm. but they had they were friends and they like really respected each other, mm-hmm. but they were just like going at each other and there was just like this sort of this energy of like we can have different ideas and disagree and like we can change our minds, but like we still ultimately all like respect each other and mm-hmm. there's this sort of uh, like uh, underpinning idea that like that's what the exchange of ideas is. Yes. Yeah. And I think honestly, if I like, if I romanticize like any era of like New York culture, it would be that era when people were yeah. doing stuff like that. Um, even though I, I would say I skew more conflict averse than not. Um, oh my I, God, me too. But I still, <laughs> I still think it's just like so important. And absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, like, again, it's, like, it's about the, like, rules of engagement, you know? Um, But I also think, like, back then, people would get actually pretty wild in the way that they would talk about each other's work. Yeah, and I think that I'm really conflict-averse, too, which I think is why I found that um, book really, really inspiring, is it made me, like, want to be sharper Mm -hmm. (laughs) and, like, Mm -hmm. be braver and know that like just because maybe somebody that I really respected disagreed with me like I could grow from that or I could disagree with them and like the respect could continue and like that's part of the process of like evolution and like public thought yes well I also I want to mention too um it has to do it's not even just like uh you know people who write for a living engaging with each other there's the audience too which is like just the reader and I always think about, um, I'm going to like, I won't quote it exactly, but in the um, Fran Lebowitz documentary, she talks about when um, a lot of her like friends and peers died during the AIDS crisis, they lost like such an educated, engaged audience for art. And she was explaining how like, you know, if those people had been at the ballet and someone had their hand a certain way when it should have been another way, they would have noticed and they would have reacted to it. And I think like, if you care about the work that you're making, like you don't just want praise, like you want to have conversations about it and you want, um, you want to learn from what you've put out there. Like, that's the whole point. Like, I've also been talking about this with friends recently, like there, for me anyway, there are two reasons for making things. There's like the urge to just make things. And then there's the urge to connect. And like my urge to connect is not just about praise. It's about right. Like conversation and learning. Totally. I think like, it's funny. Cause I remember at one point saying to Harling in like a past interview that I felt sort of embarrassed when people would like keep praise on me. Mm-hmm. Cause I felt that it, it implied like a certain goal with mm-hmm. my work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually hadn't thought of it in the terms that you are, but I think that that's maybe related to why I like felt a certain way about that. I mean, not to say that I don't absolutely cherish praise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I mean, obviously certain kinds of praise can make you feel really connected to someone if they're like, hey, I really like this really helped me think because I've been confused about this or whatever. Like that's obviously 
a rich engagement too. But I think like it was really exciting for me to feel like with this piece, I was sort of like entering like quote unquote the discourse Mm -hmm, (laughs) in in a way that felt like, oh, it was it was inviting critique. It was inviting support. It was inviting like debate. And I felt like it was really fun to feel like um, the ideas were really being engaged with. Mm -hmm. And like and I think um, I don't know. It's funny because I think of myself as really conflict averse, too, and why I was really scared to to publish this, actually. Um, and I have said in pa- in the past, like, podcast and even my newsletter that I feel really sensitive to mm-hmm. people being mean to me on the Internet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I really didn't feel like that this time. Mm-hmm. Like, if somebody was, like, not for me, like, wow, she missed this point or whatever, mm-hmm. I was just like, ooh, like, ex- yeah. I was just sort of, like, excited. And I, it made me realize that there's really a difference between, like, genuine critique and sort of, like, kind of bad faith feedback that you can tell is more like an ad hominem attack or like a a sort of just a a purposeful misreading because everyone's just like mad at each other on the internet it's like that feels so much worse yeah yeah and I think also um probably I mean you know we've talked about it privately but I feel like I've talked to a lot of people about this you know in like recent like months that there is a um there is a concern that like there's not much appetite or interest in nuance at the moment and and just generally digitally it like doesn't lend itself like digital communication doesn't lend itself to nuance um but i think that like part of what's scary about putting something out is like even if you've put all of that effort into the nuance um it could just be taken for a ride and like you may not like have any control over that. You won't have any control over that. Um, so I think probably for you, it was like exciting to see that you could take a risk, have really put thought into how you were putting your ideas out and people engaged with it as if you had done what you did, you know? And I think like right now there's like some doubt that, that, that you'll be given that courtesy, you know? Absolutely. That's really well put. I also think it made some some of the critiques like made me smarter or made me mm-hmm. think about it a little differently. And I'm like, oh, this is the this is literally the point of discourse. Yes. Like I could have just shied away from from publicizing like any of these ideas mm-hmm. and I would just have not thought any differently about anything. Mm-hmm. So I think like it, it just sort of it um, it reinvigorated my like energy for like online discourse, which I've been feeling like so bad about lately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's not to say like I don't have a lot of misgivings still, of course, Mm -hmm. like 99% misgivings, but it did feel nice to remember that like, like what the point of critique is and that like, yeah, like I I think we have this and I do think that some people were triggered by the fact that I was like critiquing a woman who was calling out assault. Mm -hmm. But I think that that might be a symptom of that same sort of like oversimplified framework, which says that like you, you are either on the same side or you're not. Mm-hmm. And you either agree that, like, sexism is bad or assault is bad or you don't. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's just, like, it's over – it's, like, overly moralized in black and white. And it's – everyone's, like, you're either on my team or you're not. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that, that like, progresses, like, leftist thought. Mm-hmm. Right? Any thought. Or any thought. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course, I think it's a, it's definitely, like, what happens within, like – the the sort of smaller community that you're referencing is like just a microcosm of like the whole big thing yeah you know Mm -hmm. um but but I also oh I just wanted to mention like you know being able to say in detail how you really feel about something is um you know it's helpful obviously to the culture right for writers to be able to write honestly about what they think And I know, like, there are lots of, like, women in media who are in, like, group chats who just, like, say to each other what they really think about things. And then they have a different, like, public kind of strategy for either commenting or not commenting on it. And it's, like, I'm glad to be in, you know, the group chats that I am, but there are plenty that I'm not in. And I'm I'm sad to, to miss what those people really think. You know, like, there's some reason why they don't feel like they that can be part of their work and I have felt like that so often 
Mm-hmm. Like, I think that that's kind of what I was excited about doing with this newsletter was feeling like I could start to take like some of that back chat and bring it to the forefront. I don't know if I've like, I think a lot of it's just been feelings because of quarantine, but I do mm-hmm. think I've had like some moments again to do that. And it is really nice, but I, I think you're right that there is not always the best environment for it. Mm-hmm. And like, we've created a really hostile environment online to offer ideas. Like everything is just... I mean, it comes back to, like, choice feminism. Like, you're just not allowed to critique a woman. Mm-hmm. I, I just, mm-hmm. like, somebody said this in the comments. They're like, why would women be, like, inherently more moral? Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like it's 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 an, it's an another kind of flattening to assume mm-hmm. that, like, women are always, like, progressing the female cause. And, like, mm-hmm. even that's oversimplified at this point now that, like, the definition of women is changing and, like, the kind of, I think... LGBTQ like issues have have added a lot of like necessary gray to the fight in general mm-hmm. but I, I still see everybody like kind of falling back on these old arguments which is that this idea that I mean I've already said it but yeah like critiquing it is is or critiquing a woman is like why not get mad at the man mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. like you know why not get mad at Jonathan Jonathan letter a leader how we say his mm-hmm. name when I'm, like, I'm speaking to, like, a completely, like, liberal audience. Like, mm-hmm. everyone here agrees that Jonathan's a monster. Yeah. Well, and actually, Haley, that's, like, that reminds me of um, the piece that we worked on at Repeller, the series that we worked on, which was a similar thought process when you did the series on um, on abortion rights, where it was couples who had been party to an abortion together talking about what the process was like and the whole thinking there was like instead of doing a story that's just like we should all support abortion rights because we know that like the majority of our readers do the thought process was like what's the conversation within that position that we should be having right now and the conversation at that time was why aren't men speaking up about how they benefited from abortion so like I think to me like your piece is more interested in doing something like that you know where it's like what's the deeper conversation within the position that I think we all have. Right. Yeah. And I think like knowing your audience and knowing what arguments are salient rather than just like kind of saying the obvious thing or like maligning the force that we all agree is evil just so that we can all like pat ourselves on the back. It's more interesting, Mm -hmm. I think, to think about like the more like the more complicated sides of like where we mm-hmm. agree and I think w- with that series which I think might have been your idea which I thought was re- like brilliant but we had this one man I don't know if you remember this who mm-hmm. he was not very likable mm-hmm. <laughs> if you recall like he did not yeah, necessarily yeah. um he had been a little bit flippant he had had like he had had maybe like six or seven partners who'd had abortions and he had not, mm-hmm. um, he didn't seem to have much like remorse or like feeling for them. Yeah. Like, like he recognized how he had benefited from it, but he was very casual about it. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. had interviewed him actually, um, mm-hmm. because, cause he didn't have like a partner to interview him, which was like the intended format. But I remember it made mm-hmm. some people angry and, um, it kind of came back to this question of like, does depiction equate endorsement? Because what we were trying to say was like, <clears throat> hey, here's like a bunch of perspectives. And I think people mm-hmm. get, um, I think people get caught up in thinking that just because you're depicting something means you're necessarily endorsing it. And I think that comes from a place of fear of like, no, 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 no. Mm-hmm. Like we're trying to like say one thing. Like I don't want yeah. to, I don't want you to like show kind of like a weakness in my argument. Which is that, like, yeah. And so I think, and I understand that fear, but it's the same thing we run into with, like, wanting to present, say, like, black people who are shot as, like, good. When it's like, actually, Mm -hmm. you don't have to be a good person to not deserve to, like, be shot by the police. Mm -hmm. And it's like, but there's, Mm -hmm. like, this fear where you're just, like, you only want something that, like, very, very neatly supports your argument because you're afraid. But I think that just Mm -hmm. ends up further separating us from, like, the other side Mm -hmm. who's, like, only looking at the stuff that doesn't support the argument. Yeah, and that's actually interesting to think about in terms of, like, where the story's coming from because I think um, something that I have... Part of the reason why I've always loved New York Magazine is because their position is... They don't cover all the news. They only cover like 
things within a certain like realm of interest, but it's not to the point of endorsing everything. Like they've always just offered up the most interesting pieces of culture and then let everyone dissect them. Um, yes. And I think that's why like this Emirata piece works for them because there isn't this like Im- implication that they're like, they're like one, like doing PR for her, you know, like they are just putting up an interesting thing for everyone to talk about. Yes, I did get that feeling too. And I feel like I, I can see, I like the idea of like a magazine and this is actually featured a lot in Sharp where like the same magazine mm-hmm. would run like two people basically like contesting each other. And you realize mm-hmm. that like that can be the role of like a an outlet that's like basically curating these debates. It's not necessarily like an endorsement. Um, yeah, so they're they're curating like conversation, not an agenda. And I think yeah. that there's like from from a lot of readership, there's like a lot of readers want publishers to have an agenda now. Yeah, I mean, this is how every. You're right. Like, this is, I mean, that happened with Repeller all the time. And I think that this is how media outlets became known for having, like, a particular political stance. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I did, when I listened to the, you know, The Cut has the podcast and they, like, brought Emily on for, like, a follow-up interview to the piece. Mm-hmm. There I kind of felt like it was a missed opportunity. It did feel like, you know, they put in all this, like, dramatic music and they picked all these sound bites to make it feel... It didn't, it it felt like it was really in support of, like, the idea that, like, this was, like, a really big sort of landmark moment for women. Mm -hmm. And I felt that that, I I was sort of disappointed by that, actually, and I felt that the interviewer didn't really ask, like, questions that I thought could have, like, made the conversation, like, really interesting. But I do agree that, like, overall, I think on the the website, there's, like, a, a sort of like hands off like we're gonna give you interesting ideas but not necessarily like tell you what to think mm-hmm. yeah and I mean that's why like like I mean they they love to cover like villains too you know <laughs> yeah um and that's why like they've had like so many great stories about Donald Trump over the years you know like they were on it because they weren't like they weren't only going to cover him if they liked him or thought he was good right and I think, like, Emily Ratajkowski's, like, an, obviously she's not a villain, but there is something about her that feels, it's a little uncomfortable. Like, you can't figure out why she doesn't make you feel good. Mm-hmm. I, I got, like, that was a really common response I got was, like, people saying something about the essay made me feel off or something mm-hmm. about her makes me feel off, but, like, I don't know why. And this really... I think it's... Well, I think it's the discord between what she says and what she does. Yeah. Like, or, or, yeah, like, like what she wants to represent in terms of like a more progressive um, stance. And then her output as a creative person doesn't feel progressive to a lot of people. Right. And I think that like, you know, hypocrisy is like such a hot topic. Mm -hmm. There's like, there's, there's a hunger to point out people who who act differently than they speak. And of course, like all of us, because we're living in such a broken system, are going to be hypocrites in some ways, right? Like I think Mm -hmm. that all of us are going to be acting at at times against our own interest. I think that's a given. I think I do it. I think we all do it. I mean, I do think that everyone should be more thoughtful about that. But I I think that like um, what I take issue with, I think, is is refusing to acknowledge that hypocrisy. Yeah. So Emrata doesn't acknowledge that some of her beliefs are in conflict with some of her actions. She's insistent on forcing her actions into her belief system in a way that I think is, like, dangerous for, like, Mm -hmm. for feminist thought or really, like, any progressive thought. So I think that was the critique I was trying to make. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is, like, and it comes all down to this, like, flattening and self-branding where you're, like, I need to be good. Like, everything I do do needs to, like, fit into this moral framework. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, like, uh, probably she's reacting to a culture who she perceives, in large part rightly so, is not able to grapple with that kind of complexity (laughs) and like 
So she would rather just like create something a little tidier for everyone, um, which I understand. And like, and I understand that, um, that impulse. Um, but I think that, and I would say that would be my, that's actually probably like my default as a person. Um, but over the years and like through people I've met who like operate differently and who are more comfortable, um, kind of, yeah, like with that complexity and maybe like are not like as sort of like shame-based, you know, like I think, um, I've learned that like there's real freedom there and that if you surround yourself with like people who, who like can take a joke and like, and can also just like acknowledge those kinds of things, then you'll be a lot happier. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm really inspired. I'm like, I'm very drawn to those types of complex figures in culture. I mean, I I think Mm -hmm. I got to this towards the end of the piece, which is where do they fit into like the progressive cause? So I think you take someone like Natasha Stagg, who I actually love. I think that she is like such a great writer and I love like listening to her like opine about culture. Mm -hmm. Um, But she has sort of like a there's a cynicism about her point of view, which is that like, well, everything's fucking toxic. Like I'm not going to like give myself a hard time for like wanting Mm -hmm. toxic things and being toxic. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think it's. It's a funny perspective and I, I kind of respect it because it's so different from me who's like, I think I'm sometimes kind of like overly punish myself, but I don't think mm-hmm. it's, I don't think it's a very inspiring mode of thought and I don't think she would claim it is. Um, mm-hmm. And then you take someone like Gia, who I also really respect, but I think sometimes it feels like th- the way that she kind of assumes that how she acts is like just inevitable also feels like not that inspiring. So I think that, like, mm-hmm. what I really liked about um, Amber Hussein's piece, which is the piece I quoted in the end, um, it was basically about, it was obviously, like, very, like, leftist in her approach, which is, like, we need to think bigger. Like, how do we liberate ourselves from these, like, really toxic desires? It's too simple to say that, um, that like, just because something makes you feel good, it is necessarily broadly progressive, But that doesn't mean that it's not maybe on an individual level empowering to be like, fuck you, I'm going to make this thing that you want to use as a tool against me as a tool for me. Um, So in that sense, I do think it can be empowering on like maybe an individual level. I just don't think it scales, which is really what kind of the final point of the essay was, Um, which was a critique, Mm -hmm. of course, of, of the response to Emily's piece, which is the idea that it was political um or politically powerful and also just her broader political framework um but but yeah mm-hmm. i think it was still an important piece for other reasons but that was kind of the the lens through which i was uh, um analyzing it mm-hmm. how should mm. we wrap up i don't know wait you're also frozen on the screen and <laughs> making like a little bit what? of a scowl <laughs> oh my gosh you look like Am you're I like very now? You look very pensive. Um, no, you're actually still frozen, but I can hear you at least. What? Ugh. Oh, no, no, I see you. No, I see you. Okay. Um, cool. Yeah, but anyway, I think, like, the... I think my final thought is that, like, I really think that this conversation is open. I feel really... I'm always happy to have my mind, like, expanded, and I'm happy to be mm. critiqued myself and be part of, like, an engaging conversation, and I hope that there's, like, more space to do this and to disagree mm-hmm. with each other um, and not assume that it means we're not on the same side. Um, mm-hmm. So I was really glad that I got to write about this, and also thank you for editing the piece. <laughs> oh, yeah. My pleasure. I miss editing you so much every day, and um, it's really exciting to me that you feel encouraged to write this kind of thing more. Um, Because I think, as we talked about more generally, uh, the culture needs it, period. Like, just this kind of conversation and, and like, a um, a willingness to engage. Um, And, and yeah, I, like, I, I I want you to be able to have conversations with many more people that, like, we are able to have privately and that like you probably have with other friends of yours too, you know? So, so yeah, um, I'm excited for just like more 
hot takes from you. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I want your hot takes too, Mallory. <laughs> Let's have you back on the pod. Perhaps, perhaps. Okay, cool. Well, yeah. thank you so much for talking to me. This was so nice. Thank you for having me. You were the perfect guest. <laughs> thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. All right, bye. Bye. Okay, um, for those of you planning to stick around and listen to an audio reading of the newsletter, I'm going to do that now. And if you're not, thank you so much for listening um, and for reading. It's always so nice to hear from you and um, having such thoughtful and engaged subscribers is such a pleasure. I'll see you next week. Okay, now for the real heads, an audio reading. Last Tuesday, Emily Ratajkowski published a story in The Cut called Buying Myself Back. When does a model own her own image? In it, she details the nefarious ways in which her image and personhood have been exploited throughout her modeling career, by photographers, by artists, by various men in her life. The story is well-written and at times heart-wrenching, and after reading it, I had a suspicion about how it would be publicly received, so I checked Twitter to see if I was right. Within seconds, a barrage of blue checks praising her as a brilliant and honest writer, implicating themselves as underestimating her because she's hot, and invoking the piece as if it were a powerful political statement. In my vindication, I felt unusually apathetic. My response to the piece was different, but I didn't hate it. I read it in one continuous gulp on a sunny bench while drinking an iced coffee and pretending for five blissful minutes that it was all I cared about. I'd do it again. Had I then logged on to find a deluge of people shit-talking Emrata for not staying in her lane or whatever, I wouldn't have felt good about that at all. Nor do I want to be one of those people. But I do think she represents a very particular type of cultural figure— one worth examining and even criticizing as an exercise in understanding the role a person's stated ideals play in the pursuit of progress, especially as they contrast with action. In reading the piece, my foremost emotion was disgust at the men who used her, and a desire to protect her and women like her. I also enjoyed her prose and found the piece useful on the level of exposing a threatening side of celebrity most people would never think about. But close behind, by way of a few details that jumped out, was a suspicion of another agenda. There was the way she spoke about money— I was 23, she writes. I hadn't made enough money to comfortably spend $80,000 on art, end quote. So she splits the cost with her boyfriend. She later mentions she hadn't made as much money as she'd hoped, and towards the end that she couldn't afford to engage in a legal battle unless she were to sell a prized possession. These little comments are telling inclusions that hint at an awareness of class, but with a tone-deaf insistence on situating herself as an underdog within its context. Then there's the gratuitous inclusion of how much weight she lost during a particularly anxious period. A detail that, given the flavor of thinspo she regularly doles out, functions more effectively as a whistle for a vulnerable type of girl than genuine exposition. These are small gripes, and I don't think they would necessarily be prohibitive to the soundness of her point. We all want to be the underdog. We've all been poisoned by diet culture. Except for the fact that by the time I reached her conclusion, I got the sense that this piece wasn't so much about criticizing a system as it was a brand exercise for Emily Ratajkowski. Not necessarily by intention, but by impact. There is no broadening of her point to include people other than herself. There is no genuine analysis of the complexity of modeling, a profession that is literally defined by selling one's image and female agency. There is no mention of actual copyright law, or the photographers and makeup artists and producers who helped create the image that she posted on her Instagram, who were also exploited by Richard Prince. The most interesting parts, where she paints herself as complicit in some way, are never further unpacked, and so seem included for extra honesty credit. It's not that I think she elided meaningful criticism in bad faith, or on purpose. I think she did so compulsively, as an expression of her and many people's general approach to systemic change, which is to assume that by simply calling out a problem or exploiting it in her favor, she takes away its power. She ends the piece on a high note, quote, Eventually, Jonathan will run out of unseen, crusty Polaroids, and I will remain as the real Emily, the Emily who owns the high art Emily, and the one who wrote this essay, too. She will continue to carve out control where she can find it. It's curiously optimistic given the horrors she's just described, and unsettlingly detached. Maybe it's meant to transmit female resilience, but to me it registered as the same benign argumentation you might see on her Instagram, whereby she supposedly subverts the toxicity of misogyny by embracing it herself. They feel like different contingents of the same choice feminist doctrine that says any choice a woman makes is inherently feminist, and any criticism of those choices is therefore anti-feminist. As we've witnessed with the fall of the girl boss, it's not a belief system that scales. Backing up. I'll admit I went into reading Radikowski's essay with some cynicism. I never found her defensive posture about what is and isn't feminist to be compelling or particularly salient. But I do think it's important to account for evolution, so let's go back a little. 
After the Blurred Lines music video put her on the map in 2013, and she became known for posing semi-naked on Instagram, Ratajkowski started narrating her comfort with nudity in interviews. Quote, Mom was topless on the beach every summer in Mallorca, she told the New York Times. And in response to the idea that American women are more shy, go to Europe, travel, she told the cut. If you spend any time there, you notice it right away. Their comfort level is different. The implication, I think, was that her propensity for being naked in public wasn't about shock value, self-exploitation, or attention-seeking. She was simply comfortable in her body. Of course, the photos she shared never showed her naked in a casual way, say, hunched over at a table or cooking, but rather taut, tan, posed, cropped, and filtered, betraying a different motive. I hope that my modeling with the things that I do, she told Maxim in 2015, I'm able to walk that line and show young women who are developing and becoming sexual that they don't have anything to be embarrassed about, and instead of being exploited, it's something they embrace and feel empowered by. In 2016, she took up this position more seriously, claiming that this kind of self-empowerment was a radical act. In Baby Woman, an essay she wrote for Lena Dunham's Lenny Letter, she said, To me, sexy is a kind of beauty, a kind of self-expression, one that is to be celebrated, one that is wonderfully female. Why does the implication have to be that sex is a thing men get to take from women and women give up? A month later, she posed topless with Kim Kardashian on Instagram, their stomachs flexed and middle fingers up, with the caption, We are more than just our bodies, but that doesn't mean we have to be shamed for them or our sexuality. Hashtag liberated. This has been the basis of our outspoken political views ever since. My response to people saying I post over-sexualized image is that it's my choice and there's an ownership and empowerment through them, she told Women's Wear Daily. She explains that yes, the beauty standards that made her rich and famous are the result of sexist oppression, but she doesn't have to act outside of those forces to resist them. I wear makeup that enhances my features and that plays into the standard of beauty that has been set up by a patriarchal society, but I'm living within it, she said, rather conveniently. I'm not wearing makeup to please men, I'm wearing it to please myself. A couple months later, she told Harper's Bazaar that taking and posting a selfie was a way to reclaim the male gaze. This I agree with. Nothing about her photos subverts the male gaze. They simply reveal it as her gaze, too. I do think that there are multiple valid ways to resist someone taking your power away. You can separate yourself from the oppressor. You can define what you think is powerful. You can beat them to it by oppressing yourself first. If Emily Ratajkowski grew up feeling like she was never thin enough, as she alluded in her cut essay, I suspect as a result of seeing supermodels in magazines, and posting photos where she looks extremely thin makes her feel better about herself, that is her personal right. The cycle continues. She's working within a system instead of against it, something many people have no choice but to do. What I struggle with is the fervent line of argument that such a path is equally effective in the pursuit of progress, or that something that is personally empowering is necessarily progressive. Given how sophisticated the online left has gotten at parsing the limits of lean-in feminism, it feels redundant for me to even point this out. But the opportunities persist. In her follow-up interview on The Cut's podcast, Radikowski implicates her former self by saying, quote, There's sort of a wave of feminism that's like, listen, we live in a patriarchy. The way to get power and get money is to commodify yourself and, you know, learn to capitalize on your sex appeal and your image. And there's some truth to that. I own a home. I live a life that I wouldn't have lived had I gone to UCLA for art. But the truth is that, ultimately, there's only so much control you can have. But when host Avery Truffleman asks what the lesson is in all this, instead of disavowing choice feminism, Radikowski doubles down on it. Quote, I think that writing this essay is the best way I can reclaim power. Is that it? If you scroll through Emily Radikowski's Instagram, aside from the occasional hashtag hot girls for Bernie post, it doesn't look so different from, say, Kim Kardashian's, a person famous and often celebrated for capitalizing off the worst parts of modern culture. You will find photos of tiny waists, flexed abs, the pursed lips and darkened skin of Instagram face. You will find promotion for clothing collaborations, sponsored ads for beauty products. Their impact, in other words, is quite similar. So what really is the difference between the two? Emily writes thoughtful essays about power and consent. Kim is decidedly less interested in feminist theory. Emily defends her choices as radical. Kim doesn't, not really. They have both been deemed feminist icons. I'm not that interested in debating what is and isn't feminist at this point. It feels irrelevant and also boring. But what bothered me about the reception of Radikowski's essay, which of course she could not control, was that broadly deeming her piece politically expedient revealed something about how we currently define activism. If the piece feels a little empty when viewed through that lens, it may be because Emily Ratajkowski has accumulated mass wealth by writing the very currents she is indirectly criticizing, 
the male gaze, female objectification, self-commodification. And by writing this piece, she did not compromise that wealth or general position. If anything, she likely increased both and will continue to do so. It goes without saying that how she was treated was unspeakably horrible and not deserved. But what is she actually aiming to change? Extrapolating. What does it mean to participate and benefit from a culture you also want to denounce? Is denouncement enough? It's a question that's dominated another arena of online discourse over the last year, literary criticism. There was Lauren Euler's viral criticism of Gia Tolentino's popular book Trick Mirror, where she accused Tolentino of pointing out problems in culture as a means to an end, as if she had no option to actually resist them through behavior. Tolentino's elective self-confinement, Euler wrote, is supposed to make her seem like a martyr. But what she sells is not herself. It's a shoddy mode of thinking that says everything a person does remains a matter of survival, rather than a demonstration of priorities and desires. You'll find a similar line of thinking among those who defend selling out, with the idea that it's everyone's right to get their bag, no matter how much doing so compromises their stated moral framework. Last month, in a piece for The New Yorker called Has Self-Awareness Gone Too Far in Fiction, Katie Waldman made a similar point to Euler, but about novelists instead of essayists. These self-conscious times have furnished us with a new fallacy, Waldman writes. Call it the reflexivity trap. This is the implicit and sometimes explicit idea that professing awareness of a fault absolves you of that fault, that lip service equals resistance. Obviously, this issue is at the center of the media reckoning this past June, that many brands and online personalities had stated values they didn't actually uphold through action, as if making this statement had been enough. In a recent piece for the White Review about Natasha Stagg's popular book, Sleeveless, Amber Hussein referenced the same ideology but gave it a different name. Quote, Such writers as Anna Wiener and Gia Tolentino have rightly been criticized for attempting to justify what are, of course, choices, via a maneuver a friend of mine now casually refers to as informed exceptionalism, the effort to write oneself out of corrupted alignments by conscientiously demonstrating an ability to comprehend them. Hussein used this as a means of comparison against Natasha Stagg's response to our far-gone culture, which is not to imply that her awareness makes her virtuous, like Tolentino, but to instead embrace that she herself is toxic, and that resisting the toxic forces would only sap her life of pleasure. I could be implicated in both lines of argument. In fact, what initially drew me to Gia Tolentino's writing was that she was seemingly able to critique a culture while also enjoying its spoils, integrity intact. It was a duality I recognized, or at least strove for in my own writing, gently criticizing fashion and capitalism while working for a fashion site and pushing product on my own Instagram. Obviously, I began to see these things as incompatible, which led to my discomfort and an eventual departure from my role at that fashion site and as a paid-for influencer, although I still enjoy Tolentino's writing for other reasons. But that doesn't mean I always had the willpower to resist the things I find ethically dubious. Like Stag, my tastes and desires continue to be molded by the very culture I aim to critique. The question, then, is how should I define those departures? not as radical or inevitable, I'd wager. And how do we possibly address a deep-seated value system that inspires us all to act over and over against our own interest? Hashtag liberation. This is the question that critics of mainstream democratic thought, aka neoliberalism, want us to consider. The primary tenet of neoliberalism as it's currently employed is the idea that societal problems can be solved through individual action. But we know by now that these issues are systemic and will persist even if the majority of us learn to behave. So what does liberation actually look like? If it's not simply personal choices, whether as a means to reclaim one's power, as Radikowski might argue, or as a means of survival, like Tolentino might argue, or in one's own disinterested pursuit of pleasure, like Stagg might argue, then perhaps it's something much bigger and disruptive something that would challenge our beliefs and completely revolutionize our desires, rather than simply justify or recontextualize them until we can live with ourselves. At the end of her piece about Natasha Stagg, Hussein put it this way, quote, If political agents, rather than exposing venality only to bemoan it as a given, were to commit themselves to more emancipatory forms of ideally collective action, then it seems reasonable enough to believe that the contours of a desirable career and covetable lifestyle might actually look different from what Stagg as a writer and we as readers are currently able to envisage. I think she means that instead of focusing on putting the ladder down so that we may help more people escape the toxic runoff of a toxic culture, we move the ladder to safer ground, or perhaps get rid of it altogether. Imagine, for instance, that instead of fighting for everyone to have a seat at the corporate table, we dealt with the harm of an exploitive upper class. 
What if, instead of fighting for all bodies to be exploited for likes on Instagram, we simply redefine the contours of aspiration? What if, instead of celebrating having a black woman candidate for vice president who has a dubious and racist record, we fought for policies that actually helped black women? Marx would call this a revolution of values. He was concerned with valuing one's time, and thus one's freedom, over one's power, money, or status. It's hard to locate a single enduring strain of mainstream culture that currently embodies this idea, and it's just as hard to locate a single issue plaguing modern America that doesn't ultimately trace back to the blind pursuit of wealth. Emily Ratajkowski's solution is different. It's personal, and it only applies to women who live and look like she does. And that's fine. But the idea that her approach is broadly liberatory, I think, is complacent at best, inhibitive at worst. There are plenty of reasons for her to tell the story she told last week that go beyond simple catharsis, which has personal value, or the right anyone has to tell their story, an important cultural tradition, especially a victim of assault. But I wonder whether she can possibly lay claim to them when her own political point of view amounts to a justification to continue profiting off of the very system she criticizes. Did anyone praising the piece on Twitter as politically powerful walk away from reading it with a sense of what needed to change, or how it possibly could within the constraints of the value system Radikowski so baldly proliferates? If not, or even if so, I wonder what it says about our collective liberatory prospects that no one seemed to care.